This is episode 49 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2009 Annual Enrichment Conference, Behold Christ's Beautiful Bride. This is session two, Tuesday morning, with Dr. Gary Brashears. A couple of questions that have come up. Uh, one of the questions is, what do you do with questions? Write them on a piece of paper. Give them to Sharon out there. She will take care of them. She will throw them away. No, she'll <laughs> pass them on to me. Uh, I'll take some time this evening and, and talk about some of the questions uh, that have come up. Um, Sharon and Jennifer out there, good people. Kurt back there, good people. Scott hiding over there, good people. Yay. Yeah. Good work. There are some background people. Uh, Janelle is one of those. Uh, Eric Peterson, Dave Burtz. There are a lot of people who put this on together. Say thank you. It's a good thing. Yeah. A lot of staff people that, you know, we don't see them because they're back in the back, the, the staff people from the, the, from the lodge. It's just, it's very cool to be a part of a team like this. Very cool. Uh, somebody asked what technology I'm using for my Bible stuff. This is Bible Works. Uh, this other way here, since we're not using it anymore. Bible Works is, uh, is the best Bible text program available. Uh, you get it from Bible Works. It's very clever like that. Uh, you can switch things that quickly. Uh, you can set up some favorites. Uh, so if I want to do like NIV and languages, it's that easy. If I want to search, there's metanoiot, metanoia, the repent word. If I want to find all the places that's used in the Bible, I just right-click, search on lemma, and there's the, all the places in the Bible. It's 58 times. Uh, if I want to see what the the meaning of that is, I just uh, right-click, look up Lemma and Lexicon browser, and there it is. I can look in several different lexicons that are set up, uh, so I can look in, say, the Bedagged, and there's the definitions for that. It's a pretty cool program. Uh, there's the Hebrew. You can have it with or without pointing. I mean, there's just all kinds of cool stuff you can do. Uh, I use it a lot. Logos, the library program, uh, is the, it's absolutely the best library program anywhere. Uh, it's just super. I use that all the time as well. But for Bible text, uh, this is the best. I, when I teach in China, which I'll be doing, God willing, in April, I can put this up and have English on one side, Chinese on the other side. I don't read Chinese at all, but this tags it all together and the Chinese folk know where I'm at, and they can read theirs and have that open at the same time. It's just a pretty major program. So very good that we've got that kind of technology available. What's the gospel? <laughs> can I just go quiz somebody? <laughs> no, don't look at your notes. I told you to memorize it. What is the garbage here? I mean, golly, lazy bunch of people. Gosh. Uh, one question that came up is what we do with these notes that I take. Uh, we're going to put them up on the CB Northwest website, and you'll get that. And I'll also put them up on my blog. My blog is net. Creative. <laughs> 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 
And uh, so I put that up there. And on my blog, I talk about things like the shack and some of the controversy around that, or did Jesus pour his, did the Father pour his wrath out on Jesus, or, you know, whatever. Uh, kind of a theological blog in a little bit. So you can do that, brochures.net. I'll put the notes up there as well. So you can get them in both places, CB Northwest or my blog. But if you come to my blog, you got to look at all my garbage as well and pictures of my grandgirls. Yay! <laughs> very, very fun to be greeted by Nicole and Joy. Uh, I love that. David, my son, works at Tadmore. Cindy, my daughter, works at CB Northwest. My other son, Don, is in Kansas City. Uh, I love family. Sherry sends her greetings, but she's not here. Uh, she was pastoring one of the people from our church who had major surgery, and so she was sitting in a waiting room from one of the people from her pastoral group last night, another part of what church does. It's exciting to be a part of church. What's the gospel? Give you a chance to think. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He died. He rose. He exalted, sent the Holy Spirit. The response is, if we repent, which means what? change your mind about who is God around here and believe, which means take God as his word, expressed in baptism, then we get forgiveness, new life, new community, new mission, and implied new destination. That's the outline of the gospel. And if you put all those pieces in there, it makes a huge difference. What tends to happen is we tend to leave out some of the best stuff. And that's why I keep going back to the Bible, which is a really good thing. I am absolutely committed to the idea that we've got to do Bible. I really am. So what we're going to do this morning, and we're going to do it really... You thought last night was fast. Wait till this morning. Uh, we're going to define church. And I'm going to assume that you know some of this stuff, but you don't know it all. So we're going to go to Acts 2.38. And some of this is just stuff that you keep talking about. Uh, that's the... Bible stuff. What is the church? Okay, uh, tell me, uh, uh, we'll meet at the church tonight. What does the word church mean in that sentence? That's the building. Right or wrong? Totally, totally wrong. Why do we keep referring to it like that? That's what it means in English. And what we do is we buy into the meaning of the language that we speak, and we don't realize how commonly we communicate the wrong meaning. Uh, what will the church do about Gay marriage. What does the word mean in that context? Moral police. <laughs> Seriously, that's what it means. We are the moral police for our society. Is that the meaning of church? I'd like to suggest to you it's not. Now, I obviously... I'm not in favor of gay marriage because the Bible's not in favor of gay marriage. But when we become the moral police in our society, I think we're doing the wrong thing. In fact, what I would like to suggest, 
and this is something I'd love to talk about, but we just can't do everything. I'd like to suggest that the church, the real church, should be known more for mercy than morality in the sense of being moral police. Now, we should be moral people, but when we look at our, when our society looks at us, I think when you look in the, in the terms of Jesus, is that we would be known more for our mercy to hurting people than for being moral in the sense of moral police. That's a pretty challenging thought. Because what happens, uh, referred to the Barna stuff, the unchristian book, the world sees us as moral police and they see us hypocritical and self-righteous because of that. Because there's too much stuff we don't do very well. So when we think about church, this is behind the definition, I think that people should look at church as a place where hurting people go to get help and transformed in the likeness of Jesus Christ into the community of the Holy Spirit. That would be a way different look at church than what now a lot of this is the media stuff and the media is not our friends in a lot of cases although it's amazing in the Oregonian Portland's newspaper here just a few days ago there was a, a big long article on there in the season of service and the Oregonian has some really good Christian people in it and actually treats us pretty fairly overall but it was really fun to read this guy he didn't know what to do with us we're like giving $100,000 to the city, no strings attached. You know, use it for homeless people and missions of mercy. They didn't know what to do with that. Hundreds of thousands of people in the Northwest are being involved in just partnering with schools and churches or schools and civic organizations. And it's like, what do you do with these people? What a good problem to cause our cities. <laughs> I love it. Um, let's... Try one more here. Uh, let's put it this way. Are you going to church tomorrow? Uh, Sunday. What does the word church mean in that context? Are you going to go to church on Sunday? What does church mean in that sentence? It's a meeting. Right or wrong? That's wrong. That is not the biblical version of church. Now, the church does meet. We're told to gather regularly. But what happens is, in our English language, and in the way we refer to church, we make it a meeting that we go to. And then what happens at the end of the meeting? You stop being church. And, of course, that is just not the biblical picture of church. Now, you all know, what is church? It is covenant community. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> of course it's covenant community. And covenant community of what? Well, let's unpack this a little bit by going to Bible. Bible is good. Same place we went last night. I think the Bible defines for us church very nicely right here in Acts chapter 2. And then we see what church does over the next 28, 27 chapters of Acts 
Paul's epistles give us a lot. There's a lot there. But I think the foundational definition is right here with the gospel because the church is a gospel thing. So let's unpack it. Uh, of course, we wrote a whole book on this, and, but we won't get all that today. Who is he talking about here? Who is he talking about here in Acts 2, 38 through 41? He is talking about the first thing with church is regenerate believers. That's who the church is composed of. They are confessing Christians. What does that mean? They have repented and believed. What does repentance mean? Change of mind about who's God around here. These are people who have accepted the message. These are people who have expressed themselves in baptism to say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And when it talks here in this passage, and it talks about uh, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number, uh, that really, to their number, speaks to a togetherness. That's that community that are committed to each other. That's that rushing along in unison type stuff. This is the epitauata. This is the, the togetherness. They're with each other kind of stuff. They're added to their number. Who is their number? Well, their number is regenerate believers, confessing Christians. Now, that much, at least for us Baptist guys, isn't hard, or Baptistic guys. And I'm a, I'm a happy Baptist. I really am. Now, that would be simple if that's all we had. What are the problems that are associated with this? Well, some of the problems that come up here is what do you do with, let's call them seekers? What are seekers? Those are people who are kind of curious about this Jesus stuff. Do you have any of those in your church? Remember, that's a trick question. <laughs> what is the meaning of church? It's, first of all, a gathering, a covenant community of what? Regenerate believers. Are seekers a part of your church? My regenerate believers are seeking after God. Well, okay, in that sense, regenerate believers are seeking after God. Yes, absolutely. By seekers, I'm using the common terms of people who have not yet confessed Christ. People are curious about the Jesus thing. They're hanging around your community. They, their kids come to your Sunday school class, your WANA program, your kid mo, whatever you're doing. But they're not yet accepting Jesus. They have not accepted the message. Are they part of your church? Well, in the strict sense, no. How come? They're not regenerate believers. So what do you do with them? See, and what I'd like to suggest here, and again, there's a lot more we could say about this, is the church is part of a community that's larger than church. And the community 
is going to include a lot of people who are not yet confessing believers. How do you make a difference between those two? Well, it's going to be kind of a gray line because you're never quite sure when some people accept Jesus or not. But there's a commitment that happens. We can call that membership. And it's when they're, as we'll see here in just a bit, it's when they're committed to each other. So when you talk about seekers or unbelievers, or if we call those curious unbelievers, uh, they're a part of the community, and I think they should feel a sense of belonging there. There's a reality that many people will join our community before they'll join our church. They'll join our community of fellowship, our community of sharing, before they'll come to Christ. And the way things a lot have happened right now is that people come to community before they come to Christ. That hasn't always been the case. But that's where a lot of it is now. As we do more of this reaching out, including people uh, within our fellowship, whether you do that in your small groups, in your service organizations, what happens to your mission trip? Can you take unbelievers on your mission trip? Depends on what you're doing, I suppose. But it's amazing in many churches, I don't think we can do that. Uh, I think that's a great way to get people involved and see the church at work. So that's a question you've got to think about. There's another question that, I mean, as long as we're talking about messy questions, there are a lot of them. What do you do with kids? Are they part of your church? Boy, now there's a booger. My son, David. Are you here, David? I don't think so. Okay, I can talk about him. <laughs> you can check this later on. My son, David, was raised in a really good home. <laughs> and in that home, uh, he, uh, I mean, he grew up in a, in a Christian community from day one. Uh, he was born in Denver. We spent the first three, well, actually, he was born in Manila, uh, he spent the first years of his life in a missionary home because we were teaching at Faith Academy at that spot then came back to seminary. And, and one of the real questions is, when did, G, when did David, my son, become a Jesus guy? It's one of those questions that we often don't ask. But uh, what I'd like to suggest to you, just to mess with your heads, because I, but I really believe it's true. I really believe and I'll use my son David as an example, there was never a time when David was not a believer in Jesus. Are you ready to crucify me yet? <laughs> David grew up in our home uh, at two years old. His birthday is at the end of January. On just after he had his second birthday, Sherry was making, well, it was Valentine's Day, and she was making cookies. What do Valentine's cookies look like? Hearts. David was helping her <laughs> make Valentine's cookies. So he was standing on a chair there at the cabinet uh, in their apartment as I was starting my seminary work there at Denver Seminary. And he was up there, pipey little voice, two years old, hyperactive kid, Mommy, Jesus doesn't live in that heart. Sherry goes, pity pat, pity pat, yes. And where does Jesus live? Jesus lives in my heart. How old is he? Two. 
Is he a believer in Jesus? <laughs> of course. <laughs> At a two-year-old level. Now, a lot of people... No, nope, he's a filthy sinner. He has not yet accepted Jesus as his Savior. Get off it, I suggest. <laughs> David increased his living faith in Jesus continuously until today. He's 38 years old, married to Samantha. They met at Tadmore. He's on staff at Tadmore. And his girls, Nicole and Joy, are following exactly the same path. Will they go through adolescent rebellion and turn against Jesus for a period of time? Don't know. They're not there yet. David didn't. He was adolescent rebellion, but his adolescent rebellion was aimed at his non-Christian teachers. So for his non-Christian English teacher who hated Jesus, he wrote his persuasive essay on the resurrection just to hassle her. State and defend, yes. Those of you who have been in my classes, it was a state and defend, and he wrote it on his own. I mean, that's... Uh, when did he become a believer in Jesus? I think he always has been. What do you do with kids? You nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. And David is an example of what's true for probably many of you. Now, if you ask David, and I encourage you to go check it out with him... He will tell you a time when he was probably six years old where we had some things, and he made, I would say, a big step forward in his faith. He would say that's when he accepted Jesus as his Savior. I'm right, he's wrong. <laughs> but that's, see, when you think about kids, that's one of the questions you have to ask in relation to what do you mean by church? Now, the question is, when do you baptize somebody? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. I think you baptize them uh, when they have a credible profession of faith. And for children, I think it's when they express their faith in their words. And for both of my boys, that was about eight years old. But that's not a magic number. It's just when you get that. And that's one of those questions uh, that the Bible doesn't give us direction on. But I'd like to suggest that is when does, when do, I'd like to see all of our kids raised as confessing believers from birth. I really would. And then nurture them through the struggles of life. So regenerate believers. Oh, my. How in the world do we do this? Uh, if we come back here, the first thing we see is uh, the people were added to their number were believers in Jesus. So now the next question is, when you look at this, here is the next statement in definition of the church. This church is under apostolic authority. So if I take that, I have to do a little playing here to get my stuff to work out here. clean all this up and put some other stuff in it before I stick it up. The, the next thing we see is they're under apostolic apostolic authority. When we think of apostolic authority, 
Where do we find that today? How many apostles are there today? Trick question. How many apostles are there today? Whenever somebody asks you a question like that, always respond with a question. And that question is what? What do you mean by apostle? Because there are capital A apostles. Who's that? That's the 12 who write Bible. They have a unique authority. There aren't any of those around today. What does little a apostle mean? Sent ones who carry the message in uniquely gifted ways. Do you have those kinds of apostles today? Absolutely. But we don't have any capital A guys. So where do we find capital A guys today? In the Bible. Mm -hmm. So we're under biblical authority. Now, for a lot of people, you think, oh, of course, of course. Uh, Of course we're under apostolic authority. We're under biblical authority. But is that really true? What I find happening is many pastors uh, go to the Bible to find a verse to support what they believe. Is that biblical authority? No. Mm -mm. What's the authority there? A pastor. Do pastors have authority? Well, of course. They're elders in the church. There's an authority associated with that. But the biblical authority is when we take the Bible as a whole and use it to shape our beliefs. Now, for example, let me, I, I just, I love challenging people to think. Some of you have been through this little exercise before. Okay, just be quiet for a moment. Uh, multiple choice question. There's a place in the Bible where God walks up and introduces himself to a dude. And he walks up and he says, Hi, my name is Yahweh. And then he says some stuff about himself. You all know where the passage is, right? When he does this, what is the first thing he says about himself? Okay. And it will make it multiple choice. Okay. Just because I know it's early and you've been sitting for a long time. Does he say he is almighty? Almighty. Get all the letters in there. works better. Does he say he is compassionate? Compassionate. Does he say he is holy? Does he say he is omniscient? Can't even spell it. Or does he say he is sovereign? Okay, now, clarify. Those are all true. Those are all characteristics of Yahweh. How you define those is an issue, but they're all true. So I'm not saying which one is true is not which one is false. What is the first thing Yahweh says about himself? In this, it's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. The Bible quotes itself all the time. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So it's arguably kind of a, key verse. It's where God walks up to a dude. Hi, my name is Yahweh. I am, and he says some stuff. Okay. Now I'm just going to, I can't help it. I want you to kind of raise your hands. How many would tend to say <laughs> almighty? Stick your hands up. Nobody. That's hard to believe. 
Are you being resistant to raising your hands? Okay. Take out your piece of paper and with your head closed, head bowed and eyes closed. Okay, you have something? Where's the verse? Exodus 34, 6. It's the cleft of the rock passage. It's the most quoted verse in the Bible. What's the very first thing that Yahweh says about himself? He is compassionate, which means what? He cares. He cares. Now, different translations will translate this different ways. The very first thing that Yahweh says about himself, the very first thing he says about himself in the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible is, I care. And the second thing he says about himself is he is gracious. What does that mean? It means, I help. Whom does Yahweh help? Anybody who will let him. What does Yahweh says about himself? I care. Whom does he care about? Everybody. And I help. Whom does he help? Anybody who will let him. Is that your picture of Yahweh? What's the third thing it says about him? Slow to anger. Can you make God mad? Mm-hmm. But you got to work at it. I mean, you got to be persistent in sin. But yes, can you make him mad? Absolutely. The wrath of God is incredibly real. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. What's the next one? Loving. Get it back up there. He abounds in chesed and Emet, two huge Hebrew words. See, it's really true. <laughs> Love and faithfulness. Chesed nimet. And then it repeats love. And what's the next thing he says? Forgiving. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What's a one word for does not leave the guilty unpunished? Mm-hmm. So if we said seven things about Yahweh, we would say he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just. Is Yahweh holy? Absolutely. What's the key verse for Yahweh's holiness? Isaiah chapter 6. King Uriah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. They're all calling to each other, the seraphs. Now this isn't Yahweh speaking about himself, but it's some high-level angels. Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. If you look at the word holy, what's the definition of holy? Very standard, I heard some of you say it, is separate. Is that what holiness is here? Where does Yahweh show up? In the temple. It's not separate. His holiness is one that comes to us. 
Now, He is God and we're not. Don't mess that up. But see, a lot of times we pick up on holiness as He is separate from us. And that's not Yahweh's holiness. Yahweh's holy comes to us. To whom does He come? To whom does He come? Isaiah. And what's Isaiah's response? Oh, crud, I'm a dead man. My translation. How come? I'm sinful. One of the seraphs flew. What does God in His holiness do? Compassion and grace, slow to anger, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just. What does He do with soft-hearted sinners? His holiness cleanses them. And then what? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Come be a partner with me. That's the holiness of Yahweh. I suggest to you we do not use biblical authority a lot of times in our definition of God. We use philosophy. Don't do it. (laughs) Read the definitions of Scripture. Read the stories of Scripture to define your picture of God. I honestly believe that a lot of times we pick up our pictures of who Yahweh is from philosophy and tradition and other religions, ironically, instead of from Scripture. Functional definition of Scripture, functional definition of authority is that we let Yahweh tell us who He is. And what that means is when the Bible stops talking, we need to do what? But how will I answer the questions? Don't. <laughs> Say, I don't know. That's hard to do, but it really is true. So biblical authority is a second definition of, second aspect of, back to Acts chapter 2. So it's believers were under the apostles' teaching. So the church is a teaching fellowship. It really is. And what? Fellowship. So it is a fellowship. You know, there are a few words in the Bible that make my teeth hurt more than that one. Does that make your teeth hurt? Did you grow up with fellowship? What does fellowship mean? Potlucks. And you have to eat some of Mrs. Jones' wretched casserole. Why do you have to eat some of Mrs. Jones' casserole? Because otherwise she would be hurt. I was willing to hurt her. My mom wasn't. <laughs> and, and what do you do in a fellowship? The favorite dish in the fellowship is roast pastor. Right? Did you grow up where I grew up? Yeah. And... God didn't have, God was in this sanctuary, so he didn't come to the fellowship hall. I mean, that word just makes me hurt because all the connotations associated. Now, if I get away from some of that and I think of fellowship and potlucks, what do potlucks talk about? Everybody bringing their gift to share together. It's a good thing, should be. People talking together about important things. Fellowship should be a wonderful thing. There's a fellowship of of things being together, of connectedness, of togetherness. Uh, 
they are devoted to one another. It's, it's an amazing, amazing power of fellowship. I got to do it. I got to do it. I know I don't have time, but we won't finish the thing here. Maybe you can always read it in my book or put it on the blog. I, when we think of contemporary society, when we think of fellowship, there are a couple of questions that are going to be really, really, really important, and that is who will take care of the guy who is out of a job and his employment has run out. Who will take care of grandma? Now, those are incredibly powerful questions. What's the answer? What's the normal answer, I should say? What's the American answer? Government. Government. We'll extend the employment benefits. And who will take care of grandma? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. We have given over the care to the government. And then we bitch and complain about government not doing it right. Okay, quit doing that. Start bringing care back into the church. We've got a guy in our church, Rick McCarthy. He is a fabulous guy, just godly as he can be. His son's a missionary in China. I'm going to go, sorry, I can't use the M word. He is a teacher in China. (laughs) I'm going to go visit him when I go to Shanghai here next month. He is out of a job. His unemployment benefits run out at the end of this month. Who will take care of Rick McCarthy and Rochelle? What that means, I mean, if we're serious about it in biblical terms, it means we as a church fellowship have that responsibility, that privilege of taking care of one another. I suggest to you that our churches have largely lost that picture of a church that takes care of each other. Sherry yesterday was with another lady uh, from her pastoral fellowship that she leads who was having cancer surgery. She was there sitting with them, just sitting. My wife is a gifted pastor. Not P, big P, but little P, caring person. Why was Sherry the only member from our church there? Why did she take off work to be with her friend? Now, wasn't other people didn't care, And actually, there's a lot of support around this family. But it's just very interesting how we don't go that direction. I've had the good privilege to sit next to Jay and Donna Erward, who are two of my really close friends. Boy, I talk about caring people. God knows, Jay and Donna, they don't get paid for it. They just do it. They're here just because they love the church. And I'll publicly say, Jay and Donna, you are my heroes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mata's here because we're kind of professional about it. Part of our job. Do you honor the Jen Donna Orts in your fellowship? I hope so. Because they're doing the fellowship. But think about it. 
What does it mean in your ministry in the church if you were to take care of the people in your church? How do you use Facebook and Twitter to increase the fellowship in your church? Twitter? What is that? Well, pretty hot stuff. Okay, so fellowship. Fourth one is breaking of bread. What is that? That's one of the sacraments, probably, along with baptism. So the church is a... We've got to do something here because my time is out. Sacraments. I'll put this up on my blog with stuff. Fifth is what? Prayer. Whoops. And I'm going to broaden that out to prayer and worship. It's a worshiping fellowship. This one is so important, I'm going to give basically the whole day to it on Wednesday morning and talk about that. The sixth thing is, and here we have the awe and the supernatural stuff, and uh, they are praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. The Lord is adding to their number. They are an evangelistic That is, they're reaching out to other believers to care for them and bring them to Christ. And then a seventh place is it's organized under qualified leadership. That's spell right. That's that's origami or something. It's a new form. We could make a whole new fellowship under that. Mm Mm-hmm. So it would be seven characteristics of a church. And there's lots to unpack under all those things. And when we come to a definition of church, this is in, actually this isn't quite the one that's in your thing, because uh, my co-writer, Mark Driscoll, took my really good definition and messed with it, if you can believe that. <sighs> so it's a little bit different. That's, that's what definition is. The local church is a group of confessing believers in Jesus Christ organized under godly leadership who gather regularly for worship and edification and disperse to evangelize and care for people everywhere. They observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion and are unified by the Spirit for mission and discipline live out the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. That would be great if we could do that. You know, there's so much to talk about here and there's never enough time. But I hope what will happen as you think about the biblical definition of church and you look at some good stuff Uh, is you'll think about questions like, who cares for Grandma? And we'll come back to it. And we'll think about who is the God of the Bible instead of the God of our traditions. And we'll be transformed by thinking about those and thinking about them together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for your compassion, Lord. I'm so glad that you care about hurting sinners. I'm so glad that you care about seeking saints, that you grace them that your anger is very real against sin. Lord, I just thank you for being angry at sin instead of the soft-hearted God that so many have bought into. Thank you that you're loving and faithful to us even when we walk away from you, that you pursue us to bring us back like you did with Isaiah. Thank you, Lord, that you forgive and it's your joy to forgive and to cleanse. But thank you, too, that you're just and nothing ever compromises that. Thank you that your holiness brings us into your holiness because you would destroy us in a heartbeat if you weren't for your compassion and grace. Teach us to love you, triune God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.